Welcome to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. This is your host, Ethan Gavon, coming to you from Sacramento, California. Keep Playing Baseball is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping every high school baseball player navigate the recruiting process and play college baseball. At Keep Playing Baseball, we don't think money should dictate college baseball opportunity, and all our resources, including this podcast, are 100% free. No signups, no fees, no strings attached. We use the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast in many different ways, but the main point is to get you the information you need to keep playing baseball. We appreciate you tuning in to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast, the best source of recruiting information on the go. What's up, guys, and welcome to the latest episode of the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. On this episode, we're joined by Mitchell College head coach Travis Beausoleil, who's been at the helm of the Mariners for eight seasons after taking over as the youngest college head coach in the country. Since taking over the program, Bose has transformed it into a perennial powerhouse, breaking records along the way during the last five years. Bose has amassed the highest winning percentage in the region while helping his players collect NECC championships and numerous player awards, including Conference Player of the Year and All-Americans. Prior to his time at Mitchell, Bose spent time on the staff at UConn with Coach Jim Penders, where he helped a team earn a Super Regional bid. That team also had a handful of players who eventually made it to the big leagues. He's also spent time coaching for the Chatham A's in the Cape Cod League and the D.C. Grays in the Cal Ripken League. We're excited to pick the brain of one of the top young coaches in the country and talk D3 baseball. Our interview with Travis Beausoleil of Mitchell College is coming up next. Beaus, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, Ethan. I'm really, uh, really appreciative you you asked me on, and uh, it's a a really good plug for our program, and so I'm glad, uh, glad I could be here. Yeah, man. Let's uh, let's jump right into it. Why don't you start off by giving us a quick rundown of your career in baseball and how you got to be the head coach at Mitchell College? Uh, I was it actually it all kind of came together pretty quickly. I I played in high school. Uh, was all state in Connecticut and uh, went to Western New England, a Division three school in Springfield, Mass. And uh, like a lot of freshmen, um, it kind of looked good on my recruiting visit, my overnight and kind of being there day in and day out, uh, you know, I didn't really enjoy it. The school was fine. I, I just wasn't enjoying the baseball program and, and left, uh, transferred out and went to UConn Avery Point, uh, which is a junior college. Uh, and it's actually right across the river from where Mitchell is now. I can see their campus um, from our beach. So, and, uh, and then loved it. Uh, the school was small, 500, there were 500 kids, there were no dorms, but uh was an All-American there, and uh, unfortunately I had to leave because it was a junior college, and uh, decided to go down to North Carolina and play at North Carolina Wesleyan College, the team then Division Three that has won two national championships, 88, 89 and 99, and, and uh, really loved my time there. Um, graduated, uh, we won a championship, um, some of my best friends came from there. I had a really uh, good time in summer baseball where I met some decent people. Um, <laughs> I, am I included among those or 
you, you're here. I, 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 don't, I don't know if you're on the top of that list, but no, of course. Oh, I mean, man. some friends that we, you know, you and I, we keep, you know, to this day, 10 years, 12 years after the fact now. But, um, and then when I graduated, like most of my guys that just graduated, walked across stage, what do you do? I had two degrees in political science and criminal justice, but I knew I wanted to coach. And so I went, came back home to Connecticut, started doing some AAU stuff, working at some training facilities. And then, uh, that, took that fall off. And that winter, I went back to UConn, the stores, the big school to get my master's degree. And, uh, over the course of the summer, I spoke with coach Penders, um, and I became an assistant for them, a uh, student assistant for them. And we had a great year. We were, I think we were one of the best division one programs ever assembled, uh, in new England, uh, George Springer for the Astros, Nick Ahmed for the Diamondbacks, Matt Barnes for the Red Sox, Scotty Oberg for the, the Rockies who were all on that team. And, we won a regional against Clemson and uh, went to a super regional where we ended up losing. But, uh, and then that summer, the Mitchell college job came available and I was a local guy. It was a part-time job when I took it over, but that they gave, they took a chance on me as a 23 year old coach with very little college coaching experience. And uh, we've kind of transformed it into a, a pretty successful program. Now you took over as the youngest, youngest baseball coach in the country, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. At the time, obviously since, uh, since there's been many, many more, I feel like I'm the oldest coach in the country now, but <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was the youngest coach in the country. And when I, uh, for a couple of years, actually, when I took it over. So you've been doing it for eight seasons now, break it down for us. All right. I, we're going to come out guns blazing with a, with a question here. Give us your best sales pitch for why a high school baseball player should play division three baseball. I think uh, Division Three offers some things that Division One and Division Two doesn't. Um, obviously, there's some top level, top caliber uh, talent at those levels, but there's extremely good talent here uh, at the Division Three level, and it allows the student to focus a little more on the academic piece rather than being on flights all over the place. Um, and and really, for a lot of those good young high school seniors. Um, who have played their entire lives, it's tough to walk into a Division One program, top-level Division Two program, and play right away. Uh, and if if you are a potential Division One guy, Division Two guy, you have the opportunity to come down to a Division Three school and play and compete every day. Uh, and then, again, I, I think the academic, uh, it allows you to be a, a student athlete and a, a well-rounded person where a lot of those Division One guys, and I know my time at UConn, those guys were up at five for lift. They were up at four thirty to to be at five at lift for five, and then you know breakfast, and they then they're in class all day, and then you got practice afterwards. You probably have a lift after that, and then academic coordinator after that. I mean, it is it was grueling, and uh, I think a Division three lifestyle allows you to compete, it allows you to get better, uh, but also doesn't have to monopolize your life unless uh, unless you wanted to. Yeah, I I think you bring up a great point, right? Because for for a lot of high school players, a lot of parents, they see the bells and the whistles of the Division One lifestyle, right? They see the glove contracts. They see television games. Um, it seems really glamorous. Um, what's lost in all that is just what you said, right? It's a, it's a ridiculously difficult schedule for those guys. Full-time job and then some. Yeah, and, and I, I give a lot of credit. I give a lot of credit to our guys here at Mitchell. Um, you know, even though it's a, a less of a, 
I'm, I'm not forcing, I'm not allowed to force the commitment to them. These guys, you know, to be a college athlete anywhere is, is if you're doing it the right way, it's tough. Um, but, you know, especially when you're at the, that division one level. And, and I would say this, when I left Avery Point, I was an All-American. I had opportunities to go division one. I had some opportunities to go division two. And I chose the division three route uh, for a couple different reasons. Um, but none of them were a, a lack of competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we lose a lot of recruits that want to go division two to say they're a division two recruit that they're going to a school that won six games last year or they're going to a school that has a starting shortstop that they, they're going to sit behind for two years and then end up transferring back and our starting shortstop this past season was a three-year player at franklin pierce university in new hampshire really good competitive division two program and he never played and he came down here and got the, got the chance. I think he hit 380 for us this season. But being the guy, starting shortstop, hitting every day in the lineup, um, as opposed to being the 33rd guy in the line, on the roster and, and not seeing – in three years, he saw one at bat at Franklin Pierce. Um, and it's not because he wasn't a good ball player. So I think for, uh, my advice to a lot of the kids, and having been through it, the recruiting process multiple times, both as a player – and now as a coach, is go somewhere where you think you can play, where you can be competitive, where you can learn from the coaching staff, you're going to enjoy them, and then somewhere where you hopefully will enjoy the school. Yeah, great advice. Let's, uh, let's stick with that recruiting piece because, um, like you said, a lot of kids don't really have their eyes on D3 unless they, their families really play up that academic piece. Um, but D3 recruiting does happen on a, a different timeline from the other level. So I want to get into the nuts and bolts of your recruiting philosophy. Um, you know, you've obviously had tremendous success bringing in the right guys for Mitchell and producing numerous all-conference players, even league MVPs. So um, what is your process for finding recruits and what's the, what's the timeline that that happens on? Uh, you know, we're pretty open. Um, I know those, those power five division ones, I mean, they're already committing freshmen. Um, your mid-major division ones are committing freshmen, sophomores, uh, division twos are kind of on the juniors. We, we just finished up our season last week and now we'll, we have a list of some juniors that are going to finish up their high school and we're going to try to get out and see them. Um, so I would say it's the summer of your senior year for us that we really try to get you on campus, um, make our pitch to you. Um, and hopefully, and again, allow us to see, the player because we we get such limited time too I think the recruiting process is us evaluating the character of the kid as well um but the summer the junior year is really important for us and then once the fall hits the guys our guys get back to school we try to bring a, a lot of the guys uh the recruits on for overnight visits and official visits to allow them to see a practice and how we do things and and see the school while it's in session and uh you know, Mitchell's a small school. We're 750 students. Um, so the school's gorgeous. We're right on the water. We have our own beach, which is, looks awesome in the summertime. Mm-hmm. But then I want the student to be able to realize, the recruit to be able to, and his family to be able to realize, hey, this is what it looks like when there are, are students here and people walking around. Because when we do a tour on June 26th, no one's going to be on campus. So right. uh, my timeline is... I. I very rarely timeline a recruit unless we have other guys that want the roster spot. Um, I want them to make sure that this is where they want to be. Cause I, I don't like it when kids come in and then 
you know, go out the next, next year because it doesn't do us any good and it surely doesn't do the player any good. So um, we'll try to identify you. I would say you know, by the summer of your junior year or in the summer of your junior year and then probably get you on campus in the fall and hopefully for us look for a commitment at some point in the winter, um, maybe early spring of your senior year. And then uh, obviously we'll get some junior college guys that uh, their timelines are way different. But Right. And so a lot of those commitments are happening around the time of admissions. So for you is how does the admissions piece factor into the recruitment? Do you, do you know when a guy is going to get in ahead of time? Can you tell them that? Or are you kind of waiting for some of these guys to, to clear that admissions process and get accepted? Um, we, we have a really good, I've been here eight years now, just finished up my eighth year. And this is our athletic liaison down in the admissions office is awesome. Her name's Crystal Simmons and she, she genuinely cares about our recruits and, uh, she has been great to work with. So they'll, they'll give, she'll give me a pretty good idea of, we call it a pre-read of Mm -hmm. whether they're going to be accepted. Um, if they're on the borderline of being accepted, what do they need to do? in order to gain acceptance here? Um, are they, do they have to go and retake the SITs, which were board optional, so that wouldn't be anything. Do we have to wait for first quarter grades? Do we have to get a couple more letters of recommendation? Um, and then through that, they're pretty good. She's pretty good about forecasting how much uh, scholarship money that the school's gonna offer them. At Division Three, we can't offer athletic money, but Mitchell especially, and I know some other Division Three schools, get very good academic merit money. Uh, based upon their grades and their community service. Um, so Crystal's been great about giving us a, a pre-read as far as, you know, he's got, Johnny's got a 3-7. He's going to get accepted. He might even be accepted into the honors program, and we're going to give him a $19,000 scholarship. Um, so, And then you can, uh, we'll, you can relay that on to the player and the family. Yep. And it's, it's all, it's all, I guess, tentative. There's nothing, it, there's nothing uh, set in stone. If, if the kid, uh, if the recruit somehow has really struggles academically, goes into some senioritis, they may pull some of that money, but very rarely does that. I don't think I've ever had that happen in my, my time here. Um, in fact, most of the time the players do a little bit better and we end up giving a little bit more money than, uh, than we originally stated. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point there just with your communication with the admissions office for the vast majority of college baseball programs out there, the coach is going to be able to give you some sort of indication. Hey, you're either in, you're on the bubble, uh, you have some work to do. Uh, and for the higher academic schools, a lot of times it's, it's a little more difficult. It's a little more of a wait and see game, but definitely something for recruits out there and parents out there to think about is, if you're being actively recruited by a program, they're going to be able to give you some sort of indication. And I love what you said about understanding what you need to do if you're on the bubble. So you're saying that uh, if a kid comes in who's marginal for admissions, you can say, hey, if you get all A's and B's next semester, you're in. Or if you do X, Y, Z, you're in. You can give them that piece of information. And Yeah, and some of our best players have been – those type of guys they've been borderline admits into the school um and they've they've gotten a chance you know and i I went back to them and said hey we're gonna wait we we can't accept you right now we have to wait to your first quarter grades so you really need to kill it in your math class 
or you really have to make sure that English grade goes from a D to, you know, a B. And the kids, it's a really good barometer of how they're going to be when they get to school is whether they accomplish it and do it. Um, and so some of our best players that we've had, you know, there's been two in mind that were guys that did that, where they, we waited till their first quarter grades and they, they pulled A's and B's. They were, they were two, two students, two, three students, and they pulled all A's and B's under the gun. And, uh, we gave them a decent merit package, um, based on those grades and they came and that diligence, I guess, for, you know, forecasted even when they got here. So, and that was, uh, um, it's, it's one of the good things about Mitchell that I love is that we are able to take a, uh, look at the entire person and not just SAT scores and GPA. Um, but it, it does help for me to see what type of player am I getting and is he going to do the work when I'm not looking? Is he going to be able to do the work when, uh, when he's under the gun? Yeah. And obviously a good indication that if they do get it done, they really want to be a Mariner. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you really want to be here and, and can you prove it? Exactly. Awesome. So it sounds like that academic piece is entwined with your recruiting philosophy and it's something for you guys that you guys are looking at closely at just as an indicator for the type of kid. Um, but how are you finding guys? You know, are you relying on the network of high school coaches, travel coaches? Are you finding guys online? How, how does a player get connected with you and, and where are you finding most of the guys that end up playing for you at Mitchell? Yeah, I, it's, it's tough because we don't have a recruiting budget that some of the top level division ones have. And, um, you know, we're, when we were at UConn, you we were recruiting such a small pool of players. Um, I think the lower you go down, you're obviously opening yourself up to more and more, you know, eligible players. So I, you know, there's, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. We obviously locally, I know all the, all the high school coaches and the best players in Eastern Connecticut and Rhode Island and uh, you know, a lot of New York, New Jersey. Um, so, but we do high school. We do, I do Legion. I love finding guys that still play Legion and compete for their town. Um, and you know, aren't going necessarily going to these AAU showcases where they, they throw two innings and then walk off the mound. I mean, we're still there. We do still recruit them, but I love the Legion players that compete and and, want to win rather than just want to showcase. Um, But then, yeah, my, my third baseman that just graduated pretty much a four year starter was from Oceanside, California. And I, I saw a video of him. He didn't play high school baseball. He, He went to a small high school that didn't offer baseball. And he sent me a video of him playing and I, I knew he was good. I knew he was athletic. He moved well and, didn't have a ton of offers and we brought him here and again he ended up being a four-year starter for us so the uh you know the anecdotes are kind of all over the place but I don't think we at a school like ours I don't think we have one real you know necessary caveat um I think we have to employ a lot of different tools and uh we do that but for a kid who's interested in Mitchell you know reach out and we'll do our best to get out and see you and now with technology and video being everywhere, it's, it's a lot easier than it was when I was going to school. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine how, how the old time coaches used to do it in the, uh, in the eighties and the nineties before all this, the, the, the video came out. So. Yeah. I've joked with, um, with parents and I think even on the podcast before that I was sending 
newspaper clippings to schools and just doing <laughs> stuff where you're like, man, what are you thinking? Um, but obviously, <laughs> obviously with video, it's a lot easier now. So what are a few things that you are evaluating in a video? What are a few things that you'd like to see out of players on a skills video if they shoot that over with interest? Uh, for me, to, you know, for, as a position player, I just want to see athleticism. Um, I, you know, I want to, I want to be able to see arm strength and, or just how the arm works. Cause you might not be able to see how far the ball goes, or, um, I want to see how you swing and stances and, and, uh, you know, there's, there's no, uh, I don't need a highlight video. Some guys, some kids like to send highlight videos of them hitting double after double after double, but I've never seen anybody send a, a strikeout video to me. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I necessarily, I necessarily don't look at results of what occurs. I look at athleticism and, and build and tools, um, you know, pitchers, how clean their arm works. It's really hard to tell velocity on a, on a video, as I'm sure, you know. Um, so just seeing how, you know, do they have some tilt? Do they have some feel? Do they have some athleticism and wherewithal? And, and I think in my program, I always try to recruit defensive first. Um, you know, you, you have to, there's only one designated hitter. So you have to earn a spot on the field and, and defensively you've got to do it well. So there's a lot of guys that I think can go up and at least put a consistent at bat together, but can you play a, a position on the, you know, on the field? Um, and that's, I think what I try to evaluate most, can you find a spot on the field, uh, at the collegiate level through one of those videos? Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of projecting your, you're evaluating skills and tools and trying to think about how that's going to play out at your level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say to almost every recruit that walks in here and I've had, I've had junior college, all Americans, I've had high school, all state players. I say to every player that walks in here for a, for a tour and a recruiting trip is I'm not recruiting the player you are. If you were the player that you're going to finish up at, I mean, you'd still be, you'd still be okay but I'm recruiting you for the player that I think I can turn you into and the player that this program can turn you into. Um, and that, that comes, I think, solely on the player. If they're willing to listen and willing to work, um, then they'll get better here. So have you ever committed the kid from California, for example, did you commit him without ever having seen him play in person or would you yep. do that? Yep. I, I didn't get a chance to see Steve Pagan play, um, in person. Uh, the other thing, the other caveat with division three that's different from division two is, uh, we can't work them out on campus. They can right. come to a camp, um, and they can pay, but we didn't have a camp running at the time. So, um, I, re I recruited Steve Pagan off the video, but also off conversations that I had with, with his, uh, travel coach and just with the personality that he was, this kid, he was a great kid, knew he was going to work hard and, and he did for four years. And again, he's, he just walked across the stage last week for us. Um, and he, uh, started pretty almost every game for four years, other than a few injuries. He's, he was a big time player for us. That's awesome. Awesome. So if you're listening out there, a lot of it is about those, those details, it's about your character, it's about the way you present yourself. Um, video is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And if your video resonates with the coach, he's going to turn to a lot of those other things, your references, what type of teammate you are. So that's, that's great info. Um, give some advice for parents out there who are listening to this. What, what is, in your mind, the ideal role for a parent in the recruiting process? 
Um, I think for a parent, it's trying to help the students choose a school that will be affordable for them. Um, and then really understanding their son, I would, I guess this could, you know, or daughter if they're softball or another sport and, and trying to evaluate what, what do they want? What do they truly want? And what I mean by that is when I left every point, I knew what I wanted. I had grown, I'd been through the recruiting process. I, so I'd done it. I knew I wanted to compete for a starting job. I didn't have to be the starter, but I, I didn't want to be buried behind nine players. I wanted to go to a school that had my major. I didn't care if it was Ivy League or junior college. I was a criminal justice, political science guy. It didn't matter to me, but I wanted them to have my major. And I wanted to go to a program that would win. I could start every day and, and play every day. Um, but if we were going to go six and 36, I was going to be miserable there. So those were the three things that I knew I wanted. Everything else was just cosmetic. And I don't think a lot of high school kids, 18 year olds, really know that. Um, so I think uh, the role of the parent could really be to try to get them to focus in on two or three things that are really important to them and really kind of seek that. But I really do believe that the decision's got to be the players. Um, I think too many parents and even some parents that we've had in our program try to force things on, on it. And it's just that the player ends up falling out of love of the sport, uh, isn't in love with necessarily the school of where they go. And it just ends up being, again, it's a, it's a lose, lose situation. So I think I'm not a parent. I don't have any kids, so I, I won't even, you know, question how difficult, you know, your job is and you know, how, uh, you know, uh, the role of that. But I, my, my simple fact is, and I've, I've had two great parents. Um, I think you're, you're a guide to help them into trying to make the right decision. And if it's the wrong decision, then they have to have ownership of it. The, the player, um, it's not, uh, you know, it's gotta be putting them into the position to be able to do that. Yeah. And a lot of college coaches that we talk to bemoan the fact that parents are too involved, they're hijacking the recruiting process or interfering with coaches really getting to know players. Do you see it that way or do you, do you see the problem, you know, is it, is it over-involvement that's more of a problem or is it under-involvement or is it both? Um, I would say, uh, yeah, I would say it's, I, I've definitely had parents that are, overly involved and, and the, the player can't get a word out um, because they're too busy talking for them. Um, and that does prevent us from getting to know the player. And I want to, I want to know the family too. And I want to know the family dynamics. So I want to have conversations with the family, but um, I don't know if there is a necessarily a thing being under um, under involved. I, I have had some parents that haven't gone on tour. They said it's the player's decision. It's up to them. Um, I've had some parents that have not helped out at all financially. Um, and it's the, again, the decision is on the students. So, but I think that's a family dynamic and a family decision that they have to come about. So I don't know if under involved is necessarily a, um, a term I would use, but I have had multiple families that I would deem have been over involved. Um, and they need to take a step back and let the, let the student, let the recruit enjoy the process rather than them enjoying yeah. it for them yeah a um, few more questions on recruiting and evaluation stuff before we turn more of our attention to what you're doing at Mitchell and, and how you're building your team culture um, give us your top three 
recruit don'ts, meaning these are things that you never want to see a recruit do or things that will basically immediately get them crossed off your list. Top three. Uh, top three. I mean, first one is just don't run hard. Don't hustle. Um, that, all, that stuff, as stupid as it sounds, um, is all within your control. And just because you, you run hard, and I say this to every, the kids whenever I get a chance at camps, any camp that I work, this is what I say to them. You know, running hard and hustling and running out hard 90s or being the first guy on the field isn't going to necessarily highlight you and get you on someone's list, but it's not going to get you crossed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have crossed off kids, and I have cr- crossed off good baseball players that I've seen and then have played against us, um, and I've crossed them off because of how they the lack of hustle that they've had. Um, so I guess that's one uh, is, is not running hard. Uh, throwing, equi- uh, throwing equipment and temper tantrums is, uh, you know, it's one thing to be competitive and I'm not going to say as a player, I, I never had, <laughs> I didn't have some <laughs> of those episodes, but I think you have to learn how to fail and you, you throw a helmet. Okay. If it happens once and it happens once a month, that's fine you know, you release some steam, but if it's a constant day in and day out thing, or you're yelling at umpires every time it's, um, you know, that's, then there's a personal personality thing that that's going to be difficult. And you're probably going to be looked at as very difficult to coach. Um, and then I would say the final thing don't do is, is don't, don't neglect conversations with the coaches uh, you know are so many students so many recruits that we talk with now cannot talk on the phone they cannot feasibly have a voice conversation they have to do it through text and uh, uh, you know I don't know if it's they would necessarily get crossed off this way but be able to have a conversation with uh, you know with your coach and if uh, if the school you're looking at is not for them for you you know be able to have a conversation and say you know, we've moved on, we're going to another school. Unfortunately, it's not what I'm interested in. You know, we hear it every day. I know it's difficult conversations to have, but I would like to see more recruits be able to be able to speak voice to voice, face to face, rather than through text message. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be a nerve wracking to talk to a college coach, but I think it's important that guys realize hey, you got, you're on the same page. You have the same interests, you have the same goals, just a matter of having that conversation. And, um, figuring out if you're on, you know, on the same page with the things that are important. Um, all right, let's, let's flip the, the script here. What are your top three recruit dues? Meaning that if, if you see a kid do this immediately, you're going to draw interest. <laughs> uh, be good, be talented. <laughs> um, no, um, I think. Obvious if, one, right? If, right. Yeah. I, I think uh, on a, for a, position you know for a a baseball specific thing i I got talent is is there and talent is uh is the first if you can run if you can run fast you're going to gain gain some interest if you have a good arm strength you're going to gain some interest um you know so i i think being talented is uh is obviously makes it the is the most obvious Mm -hmm. um what i like to see are recruits do and at least have is some semblance of the weight room. Uh, they don't need to be the Hulk and they don't need to be, you know, uh, you know, Iron Man in there every single day. But when you come into college, almost uh, nearly every college 
program and every good college program is going to use some the weight room in some aspect and to have a, a recruit be able to have some familiarity with it helps quicken up the timeline of that we see them being able to compete at our level um you know and then i would say to go along with that academically take care of your academics it's it is within your control uh and the last thing you want to do is be very talented and then be stuck going to a school that you don't want to go to because you're top you can't get into your top choice i know it's a cliche but academically is your student athletes first um and if nothing else it's because you want to you don't want to cross your name off a list that you want to go to because you didn't spend enough time studying for the math homework or you have a math test right Great advice. Great advice. Um, let's transition a little bit to what you're doing at Mitchell College. I think what you mentioned with the strength and conditioning importance is a good segue. So how are you guys, you know, working, working the strength and conditioning piece and integrating that into your baseball work? Uh, so we, yeah, we have a strength and conditioning coach. So it's our women's basketball coach and she's been good. Um, and then we basically have different programs. Our pitchers have different program built by our pitching coach, um, and, uh, figuring out what they need to do best. A lot of flexibility there. It's not just going and throwing as much weight on the, uh, on the rack as possible. Um, and, uh, and for our position players, it's a little more, you know, depending on the type of time of season, it's a little more heavier lifting in the, in the fall and winter, and then obviously maintaining in the spring, but it really is trying to give them some familiarity, the freshmen, especially some, some familiarity, because we have had guys in this program that have never smelled the weight room before they walked into our door. So if we try to go too fast, they, they'll actually see regressions. So, um, you know, the weight room is, is critical for us. It really has allowed us to catapult to the top of our, uh, of division three. Um, it's just makes making sure we do it in a smart manner. Yeah. So walk us through what a typical day would look like for a Mariner baseball player. What, what does it look like from the time they wake up until the time their, their head hits a pillow at night? Um, I, you know, it's different times of the year, but I would, I guess I'll take it from the kind of the spring context of playing. Um, come, come February 1st, we're basically practicing every day and we go six days a week. Mondays will be off day, uh, but they're generally up. So they should be up anyways. I, I would, I would say about seven, <laughs> seven thirty. Most of, most of our guys in our school is very good with allowing us to schedule classes, um, uh, all but one of my players, I, I have 42 guys on the roster. All but one of my players had cl their classes were done by 2:20, um, and the only reason that one player had was he was a senior and he needed this class to graduate. And the only time they offered it was 2:30. Right. So um, all of our guys were in class either 8 to 10, uh, 10 10 to 12 10, or 12 20 to 2 20. Probably and usually probably two times two slots of those. So they're, they're in class till the morning, um, in the morning, if we're playing a game, then we're, we're usually out of class a little to travel around 11, 12. If we don't have a game, we're practicing. We usually practice at about three o'clock. So the guys would, you know, in between classes, get some food and then we'd head out to the field. Um, we try as much as possible. And I would say 90, 95% of the time we have team practices together. We break it down positionally 
at practice, but I like the team to be together. I don't like to bring in pitchers early and then have them leave and, you know, and then have outfielders there. I try to keep a, as much of a team unit there as, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, they uh, go to, uh, we'll probably practice three to five 30. I'm guessing three to five, three to five 30. And then depending on, there were certain days we had study hall. So if you get a three O in our program, you don't have to go to study hall. Um, if you're under a three O, then you have study hall with me. And so depending on the day, we would have an hour and a half to two hours of study hall. And we'd have that two times a week. Um, and then they're pretty much off the rest of the night. And most of our guys in the spring, they would, uh, they would hit the weight room after practice or in between classes. Um, I don't mandate the weight room in the spring. Um, but I would say probably 90% of our position players do it. And I'd say probably 60 to 70% of our pitchers get in there in some aspect. In right. season, out of out of season, we uh, we basically mandated on them. Okay, so again, you can see kind of compared to maybe a D one schedule that there's a little bit more time, flex time built in uh, for them to do things that interest them to work on their school, um, which I think is an important distinction for people out there listening. It's not that baseball isn't a huge presence. It's just that there's a little bit extra flex time. Like you said, maybe it's not the mandatory workouts or it's the ability to flex that workout into your schedule, however it fits best. Um, so I think that's great for people to hear just a a different schedule, a different way that the day breaks down. Um, let's talk about first year players. So are you doing anything special to help your first-year players transition to college baseball or is it kind of a jump into the deep end and see if you can swim type deal? Um, I think it's both. I, I, we don't want to throw their feet to the fire. We want to, the first couple of weeks we don't practice. The captains actually run captain's practices. Um, and that's designed positionally. The leaders at our position, the upperclassmen at our position, go through and teach them all our defensive work. We call it daily work. It's one thing we do at, uh, every day at practice, at least 15, 20 minutes of defensive work. And so the, the upperclassmen, before we even start our fall season, are the ones that teach them, should be all, I, almost everything they need to know. Um, the first couple of days of practice, we do it as a coaching staff to make sure that they didn't forget anything and that everyone's on the same page. But yeah, I think we try to uh, get our uh, our younger guys associated with our upperclassmen as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and a Division three fall season isn't uh, isn't as long as a Division one or Division two, and we don't get as much game time. We only get one day of outside competition, so every weekend's an inner squad. Right. So the good thing and the the good thing and the bad thing about it is obviously we're not we're playing each other, which makes for some long days and drawn out days, but you know, and here's one of my recruiting pieces as far as Division Three player goes is that I've had All-America. I had a two-time All-American at second base. And our backup second baseman every fall got to compete against him. And if that backup second baseman was better than him, he was going to win the job. Um, so that's the one good thing is every weekend we're inter-squatting and you're playing against – or inter-squatting or playing the alumni or, or the one-day games, but you're actually getting to showcase your talents in a game and you can compete with anybody. We, we had 10 all-conference guys last year, and our freshmen 
left fielder came and won a job. And he was actually conference player of the year this year, but he won the job in the fall over a, over our starting left fielder the year before. So, um, as a freshman looking at division three, that's the other thing you're going to get to compete in game time against the starters that are, you know, quote unquote starters that are, you know, currently there. Um, but through that all, we're, we're developing them and we're talking with them and we're trying to get them to learn the program and learn how we do things, um, how we work and nuances that have made us better. And it takes, you know, freshmen, takes freshmen a little bit, you know, longer and it needs to be continually uh, pushed upon them. But the best ones figure it out, you know, are told once and then, you know, know it. Um, and they go from there. Um, I want to touch on, you talked about captain's practices. Those may be unfamiliar to high school guys, but can you just explain, you know, break down basically what that means, what those are? Yeah. So division three, we're only allowed five weeks of of practice in the fall. We're only allowed 16 days. So our fall season basically is three days a week. Um, generally because of class schedules um, at Mitchell is gen our fall season generally is Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays from the middle of September to basically the end of October. Um, you know, we have the best winning percentage in new England over the last five years. I think we're fifth in the country, fifth or sixth in the country in winning percentage over the last five years. We don't have that success because we only practice 16 days a week right. or 16 days in, in an entire fall season. Right. Um, so a captain's practice is really, um, it, it's really not even a, a practice in the sense that the whole team goes out and kind of does everything. It's really positionally specific. The infielders will get together and go through and they'll, the, the upperclassmen will run them through the drills that we do and teach them how uh, mechanically things that I'm going to look at and things that I'm going to say to them. The outfielders will work on their drop steps and our senior outfielders will kind of work with the freshmen to make sure that they're ready so that when we start practice, when we start doing our drills, we're not wasting time kind of explaining it. And again, the coaching staff will still spend time to make sure it's, it's articulated the right way and that they're doing it the right way. Um, we're not going to kind of throw their feet to the fire. We're going to make sure that they know what they're doing, but the captain's practice and having a good stream of upperclassmen to be able to teach allows us to move so much more quicker and we're not wasting three practices, you know, where now we waste, no, we won't waste, but now we've spent 20 minutes working on something because they've already learned it for the first two or three weeks because right. our senior center fielder taught them. So um, their captain's practices are, are not mandatory. Uh, we can't force that upon them. Again, one of the division three things it is, it is not, uh, they, you know, they do not have to go. Um, but again, I think they'll see their teammates out there. I think the, and they'll see that if they're not in the starting lineup or getting the, the playing time they want in the spring, it really probably goes back to, well, they didn't prepare themselves as good as they could have in the fall. Yeah. I mean, and, and you talk to any division three coach, I mean, captain's practices are going to be a huge piece of the puzzle. How, how detailed those players can make it, how, how well those players can coach themselves. And I think it goes without saying that if you are able to put together quality captain's practices, your team chemistry is going to be a lot better as well. So um, thanks for breaking that down. That's a, a topic that hasn't really come up on the podcast, but it's definitely a critical piece of, of the D3 puzzle. 
Um, yeah, and I, w- I, w- I guess I would further and say this to the NESCAC schools, um, the, the, the pseudo Ivy League schools, Wesleyan and Trinity and uh, um, Middlebury and Bates, um, those really some of those top echelon academic schools do not get a fall season. They are not allowed to have contact or athletic contact with their fall coach. Now, that's, that's not all Division Three. That's just, that's just that conference. Um, but they do, they have a, a season, a fall season, which the coach is not allowed to go out to the field. Um, so, you know, I think for those, for those academic schools who, who have been very good, it, a lot of those depend on captain's practices and, and making sure that they're getting their work in individually. Yeah. Important note there. Um, well, let's talk about practice when, uh, when the skipper is around, you're an infield guy, you're a hitting guy. Um, why don't we start off with infield? Why don't you break down the pillars of your infield instruction? Uh, for me, uh, infield, infield work is all based around feet. Um, getting those guys, making sure that their feet are moving and they're reading hops uh, correctly. And I guess my tagline with, all, with them always is going to be, if, if you get a bad hop, your, your hands, everyone talks about how good their hands are and how quick their infield hands are. Well, I, I was a pretty good defensive second baseman, shortstop, and it was because I had good feet. If, if you have good feet, you'll always get the good hop, um, which makes it a little easier. But um, we break down our guys with our, the daily work that I t- spoke about earlier, the daily work for infielders really is just getting them in stationary positions, and we call it a pick sequence. And we'll make sure that they're in correct fielding position, chests are up, butts are down, and they're not bending at their waist. So for any infielder too, if if you're bending at your waist um, and your butt's not down, it's it's a big, big no-no. And we break down some of our all of our infielders that way, and they do that every single day, every practice. I, I would say 99% of practices we do daily work, where we do our pick sequences to make sure that they're in correct fielding position, um, and can basically feel the stationary ball ball thrown right to them before we even take a ground ball. Mm-hmm. So, um, after that, yeah, when then we just will will work on kind of all aspects and the pick sequences, both straight on forehand, backhand, and and making sure that their mechanics are right. Then we we will go to some ground ball, um, some just routine ground ball things, making sure that they're gaining direction to their target. Which I know a lot of young guys end up coming in so hard at the ball that their momentum brings them towards home rather than towards first. Um, and it's really trying to get the younger guys to play more cerebrally, um, rather than so instinctually. And I, I think our best players are the ones who can combine both, but, uh, getting them to understand why they're doing things as opposed to just going out and doing it. And yes, coach, yes, coach, yes, coach, and not really understanding what they're trying to do. So, right. So it sounds like just a, a steady progression into obviously ground ball work, but are you guys using fungos? Are you using live hitters? Are you using machine work? What's uh, when you guys are taking ground balls at your position? Um, what does that look like? Uh, so it'd be all, it would be all of the above. We, uh, when we hit them uh, fungo upon fungo upon fungo upon fungo, they get a ton of that and, we try to, I, I'm pretty good at hitting a fungo so I can kind of put it where, wherever I want. And whether we're working forehands or slow rollers or trying to put different spin on it to, to, to push them, we do that. 
we've broken our machine down and we've, we've used the machine a lot um, to give them, a, again, a different spin and a different look at it. It's a, I, the machine's a little more difficult because you don't get the reactionary time. Um, being an infielder, especially I think being a middle infielder, so much is based upon not only your first step, but your reaction prior to your first step. And so with the machine, you don't quite get that. Um, it's, it's really trying to you see uh, barrel angle and what pitch is coming and where the pitch location is to be able to give me a step in the right direction. And I, I'll be moving uh, towards that direction before the ball's even hit. And that it should give me two or three steps longer um, of more range that way. And so that's one thing you don't get from a fungo. That's one thing you don't get from a machine. So we do try, we do, we'll just, when we take our batting practice, which we call Mariner Pride, when we take Mariner Pride, we will uh, have our infielders out there and they'll either have to turn a double play on every one or we'll just have them field the, the regular play rather than just batting practice being for the hitter. Um, our batting practice is really for positional, the, the position players, both infielders and especially the outfielders. Um, it's that outfielders are going to be able to work and, take their eye off the ball and get to the spot um, and really start reading balls off the bat. Infielders can really start seeing some progression as to moving in the right direction before it's already there. Catchers can really work on getting behind the ball and, and having their feet move before they've even caught the ball. So, and that's one thing I, we took from UConn is I don't, I don't have batting practice in our program. We don't, we don't call it batting practice because it's not for the hitter. We call it Mariner Pride because my back might be turned throwing throwing BP. Um, so what these guys doing behind me is really taking pride upon themselves to make sure that they're getting better and they're doing what they need to do. Love that, man. Love that accountability. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about your hitting then. Let's talk about the the hitting aspect. So what are you teaching your guys? to do when they're hitting? What are you working on? What's, what's the approach that you want them to have? Drill progressions for practice, anything outside the box? Just kind of break down what it would look like if we wandered into the hitting portion of your practice. Um, so I would say, no, I don't, I don't think I do a ton of things outside the box. I think we do things very fundamentally. Um, I think we try to come up with some drills that get the players to understand what they're trying to do. But I think the biggest difference between a high school player and a collegiate player is most high school players are pretty one dimensional and it's they're, they're They have power to the pull side. They like to come around the ball. Um, I've had some players who are so far inside the ball that they're not able to actually pull the ball. So even a pitch that's middle in on them, their hands still work inside and end up flaring it to the opposite, the opposite field. Um, we try to break our guys down so that they can be complete uh, hitters. And what I mean by that is being able to hit whatever pitch is thrown, wherever it's thrown on the plate, and not just doing the same, the same thing with it. I've known guys that could hit 98-mile-per-hour fastballs, and they could hit it over the right field fence. Um, but if you didn't throw that one pitch to them, they were going to roll it over to the third baseman. It didn't matter if, if that pitch was not in the right location, they were going to roll it to the third baseman. If they you threw a changeup, they were going to roll it over to the third baseman. And so what we spend a lot of time in our program doing is getting our guys to understand, to hit the ball where it's pitched and not trying to let the barrel decide where the ball goes, 
Um, but let wherever the pitch is thrown, let that decide where the ball goes. Um, and then, uh, and then executionally, fundamentally, uh, being able to get your bunts down, being able to get your hit and runs down, being able to hit behind a runner at second base, and really, again, kind of what I said with the infield, um, taking accountability in it, but also taking, you know, understanding what you're trying to get out of it, being cerebral about it, and making sure that, uh, um, making sure that they're getting better at something that they're, they might not be strong at that's a, and attacking a weakness. So our guys, they're not going to just go on the tee and just do the same thing over and over again. We're going to make them feel uncomfortable because that's inevitably how they need to progress. If they do one thing well, that's great. Now let's focus on the things that they don't do well. Yeah. And so what, do you have any, drills that you guys do on a daily basis do you have are you doing machine work breaking ball work what what are some of these drills that, and things that you're running them through to get them feeling more comfortable being uncomfortable i would say that the, the machine does come out with a lot of machine breaking balls a lot of our righties um spend countless hours down at the cage working on breaker you know breaking balls and and not coming around it and and again, I would say rolling it over to the third baseman, but being able to stay inside it, seeing it middle away, and then being able to stay behind it and drive it to that right side. Um, so I will, we don't do it every day, but a lot of our right-handed hitters, um, strong, powerful, young guys, spend a lot of time down at the cage working on right-handed breaking balls off the machine just to give them a better nuance of, again, a lot of those guys are trying to hit that ball so hard to left field because they see it, see it coming in or see it down the middle and don't realize by the time it gets to them, it's going to be on the outer half. So yeah. trusting themselves and driving it to the right side um, and, again, becoming a complete hitter. But um, we use in the gym when we're in February, we use a punching bag. We use a big heavy bag that the guys hit into, um, and that's not necessarily a strength thing, but it allows – the player to see their hands working inside the baseball. Um, and you, you'll actually see contact, your hands working in front of that heavy bag, um, as opposed to lagging. If, if, if they're even with it or behind it, then they're, they're rolling over. So that's one of my, my favorite drills um, is putting them as it's stationary. I can, they're going to freeze once they hit the bag. It's, that's not going anywhere. Um, so breaking them down and getting them to understand, hopefully, where their hands should be and what we're looking for hand placement and if their bodies are lunging. So that the heavy bag is invaluable to our program. And I've seen other programs do the same thing, similar with tires and with uh, other stuff like that, but. Good constraint to help them feel where they are and really get it, develop some of that higher level thinking that you've been talking about, about their, their positions through space and, and how they're moving their body. Yeah, it's so hard when because we're ba everything we do in baseball is so quick. It's so quick twitch, and and some some of them are just some guys are really good at it, and they they have a, a feel for it, but they don't understand what they're doing. Um, and so so once we do drills like where we can get them to immobilize and station, you know, be stationary. Now I can talk to them while they're in that position and hopefully get them to a better feel as to what they want to do. And I think if you're around, you know, coaching circles. You know, and how many times on the road have we heard the kid's got a real good feel. He's got a good feel for the game. He's got a good feel for the plate. He's got a good feel for the, you know, for himself. He, it means he's got, I think, 
better body control. And uh, it's really tough to teach. Some guys have it or, or you don't. Um, and if you don't have it, I think you can try to learn it or at least try to get a better out of it. But it's, it's really difficult with how quick and violent everything we do in baseball is. So being able to slow them down and be stationary to get them to see it and understand it is critical. Yeah. How about uh, charting or technology, uh, either on the offensive or the defensive side? Are you guys are you guys keeping track of anything in your training to make sure that these guys are, you know, reinforcing what you teach? Are you using any of the the new technologies? Where do you stand on that stuff? No, not a ton. One, we don't have a budget uh, big enough to that uh, that. Uh, these uh, hit tracks. I would love to have one. I think it would, it would be good to see um, and, and a good useful tool for them to do, but we just don't have, we don't have the facility or the, uh, or the money at this point to be able to do that. But what we do in our inner squad, we track every inner squad and we have spray charts for our hitters. Um, and we have uh, uh, pitching charts, which every inner squad, a pitcher goes out there and throws there. Every pitch is, is on the radar gun. Every pitch is tracked to show, you know, are they executing? Are they not? Is there, was their change up really missing? Um, are they getting any swings and misses? Um, so I think we're, I don't want to say we're old school. Um, I, I don't think we've, we've gotten into the new school technology aspect of it, but I think uh, we, we try to do as best we can with what we have. Yeah. And over eight years, you've been uh, pretty good at that. So, you know, you took uh, – I want to transition a little bit to some team culture stuff because, you know, to be honest, you took over a program eight seasons ago that wasn't very good. You've transformed it into the winningest program in the region over the last five seasons. Um, when you think about your team culture, when you think about the guys that you have, what are some of the words that come to mind? Uh, selflessness. Uh, our guys are, I played five years of college baseball. If you count the year that I redshirted, I coached at UConn and I've coached here now again, just finished up eight years. So that's a lot of time in baseball. And, you know, we played together in summer baseball. I've coached in the Cape league. I've coached a lot of different areas, you know, areas and aspects and divisions of baseball, one thing, especially over the last three or four years that we have done is create a culture. And I, I, I try to take credit for it, but it goes to the players. It goes to our upperclassmen that they care more about the team and they care more about the guys standing to their left and their right and, and winning the game and having you know, a successful season than they do their playing time. Um, and I, I really believe that we have a group of, you know, very selfless guys that care more about their teammates than they do themselves. So I think that's one. I think hard work and dedication, what these guys do to be a college athlete is a very difficult thing to do. Um, you can do it very easily. There are a lot of talented guys that just kind of go about and do the motions. But, you know, in our program, we have really fought to get the best guys and the dedicated players that are going to be in the weight room, even when you're not required to be, and are going to be out on the, the field taking ground balls, you know, maybe December 3rd when uh you know it might be cold out and there's no fall practice we're done but they're they're going to be out there and, and giving it their all so i think those couple things come to mind to so dedication uh hard work 
uh, and then truly selflessness. That's, that's what we have tried to instill in this program over the last uh, uh, eight years. And, and com- as far as playing wise, I guess I would say fundamental. You know, we, we, I'm not reinventing the wheel. We, nothing that I put into our program is, is that I came up with. Uh, I've stolen it from Jim Penders at UConn. I stole it from Roger Bidwell. I've, you know, there's, there's no, it's not like it's a, the triangle offense in basketball. I'm not coming up with anything new, but we're going to do it fundamentally. We're going to do it better than most teams when we're going to do it a little more competitively because it's going to matter to us a little bit more. Sure. And so do you feel like, you know, you said you try and take some ownership over that, but a lot of it comes from the players. Do you feel like it's a, a top-down created culture? Is that coming from you and moving on down? Is it coming from the players? And, and, you know, how did, how did this transition take place? And how did you basically come up with these four or five th- elements that you've found success in? Um, yeah, I, I do think it's a top down. I, you know, I, that's what I think I, I won't take credit for it because, uh, you know, we have to have the players. I don't take credit for our wins or for our success. It's the players go out and do that. Um, so it's, 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 we've been lucky enough to have some really good baseball players, but our, the last couple of years, our best baseball players have been our best people. Um, so the leadership that we've gotten, but if, if me or, or my coaching staff, doesn't do it and isn't dedicated and we're not out busting our bus recruiting or or we kind of show up five minutes before practice and leave five minutes after practice then then you can't expect the players to do that so there there isn't anyone i would say at mitchell college who works harder than i do um i would say there are a few people in you know college baseball that are putting as much time in as as we are um i'm sure there are guys out there that are putting more time in but that's just not who we are we uh our coaching staff busts our butt to in the recruiting end to find the best players while they're here. We're doing classroom checks and we're at the uh, lifts in the morning um, and we're always available to our guys. So I think the dedication aspect, if, if your head coach isn't showing it, then how can they really hold the players to be accountable for it? So Um, awesome, man. Well, it's whatever you're doing out there, it's working. So keep, uh, keep that rolling. Um, I don't want to keep you here all day. You've, you've given a ton of great information, uh, insight into your program, insight into D3, the recruiting aspect. I've got two, uh, two final questions for you. Um, and it's just kind of trying to reca- recap what we've talked about. Uh, number one is if you could give one piece of advice on the college search and recruiting process to a high school player who wants to play college baseball, what would it be? What is your one best nugget for those guys? Well, I, I would say that they have to find the two or three things that are important to them. Kind of, I said it earlier. Um, I think a lot of people are going to tell students to go to a school that they enjoy the school at um, because if baseball doesn't work out, they get injured. Well, you want to be still at the school. Um, and I would say, I would argue against that. And then not saying that I think each individual player is differently, but I, I chose, I went to three schools and I chose them based upon baseball. Um, and I knew what I wanted to be happy. So each player is going to be different. 
some kids want to go to a big school and they want to go to Arizona State. And they're going to have to do everything in their power to to find a baseball program at a high uh, at a big school to be able to do that. Um, some kids want small. Some kids want to win. Some kids might be just very easygoing and don't care. Um, but I would say try to pick out two or three things that are important to you: size, distance, location, financial, uh, ability to play, ability to play right away. Uh, a coaching staff, maybe a coach that played your position, um, players on the team that you enjoy, uh, facilities, whatever it is for that specific player, find two or three of, of those and then gravitate to those schools that can offer you that. Um, if you if you go into it kind of blindsided, it, it probably won't work out for you. So I, if you go in there thinking you want something and it turns out you want something else, it's, it's probably not going to walk, you know, work out for you. So what I would say is, you know, it's tough to do as a 17, 18 year old kid. And that's where I think the parents need to come and help out with that is really try to figure out what's important to you and then search the schools and then contact them and continue to contact them. And, uh, you know, if, if you're not getting any love back, maybe it's time to move on down that list. Yeah, that's great advice. Know yourself, know what you want. It's a lot easier to find what you're looking for when you know what it is. Um, last question isn't really a question at all, but what we like to do to finish off each episode is just give an open mic to whoever our guest is to address anything that we haven't covered or deliver a message to the high school parents, players, and coaches out there who are listening. So do you have any words of wisdom for, for people out there? Anything you want to mic drop on? <laughs> Uh, I guess I would say this, and that's being a college athlete for any sport is is tough, and, and there's a lot of perks to it. But there's it's to do it right is a lot of dedication, um, and just make sure you're you're willing to put the sacrifices in. Every everybody, a, a, one thing I say with our guys a lot is everybody wants to be on the mound as the the number one pitcher. And everybody wants to be the shortstop and everybody wants to back clean up and no one cares what you want. No one in life is going to care what you really want. Maybe other than your parents, it's what you're willing to put into it. And if most of the time, if you're willing to put a lot into it, you're going to get a lot out of it. Um, and I think that's why we have been successful here is we have guys who play and who don't play, who put a lot into it. And for the guys who don't play, yeah, they don't get the statistics but they get the opportunity to be a part of a program they, uh, of growing, becoming a man, um, and also team camaraderie and, and friendships that will last forever. So I would say for, I, I meet, you know, we recruit 200 high school, 250 high school kids a year that come in and, uh, you know, we talk and, you know, obviously we only bring in about 12 to 15, depending on the year is, make sure you're ready to work and you're willing to put in more to something than you're expecting to get out of it. And if you have that mindset, you'll be successful as, as a college athlete. And I think you'll be successful as a, as a person in life. If you're willing to work for something, maybe to more, maybe to put more into it than to get out of it, you'll be very successful. Mike drop, man. Great, <laughs> great piece of advice to end on. For those out there because that's so much of what college baseball is it's about those life experiences those lessons that you're going to carry 
well beyond your years on the field, obviously outside the lines and outside the dugout. So awesome, man. Been, been a lot of fun talking shop. I know, uh, you and I, like you said, 12, we go back 12 years to when we played summer ball together and, uh, a great baseball mind, obviously doing a great job out there at Mitchell college. And, uh, we're going to have to bring you back on to, to talk more in the future. Well, anytime I'll, uh, I need to fly out to Cali to see, uh, to see you and the, the newborn or maybe I'll get you out here to be my pitching coach sometime. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. We can work on one of those things might be a little bit easier than the other, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's always great talking shop. We appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, winningest D3 coach in New England and uh, shameless plug, best looking coach in New England, as you so often say in your recruiting <laughs> pitch. Um, exactly. Great having you on the podcast and uh, we're going to have you back on at some, t- some point down the line. Thanks, Ethan. Anything I can do, let me know. And I'm really, was really excited to be on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. As always, if you need more information on the recruiting process or how to play college baseball, you can find that for free on our website, www.keepplayingbaseball.org. We're also very active on social media. That's at Keep Playing BB on Twitter, Keep Playing Baseball on Facebook, and at Keep Playing Baseball on Instagram. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take the time to subscribe and leave us a review, or at least tell your friends. We provide all this information for free because we want to help you get to the next level. If you're interested in a partnership or sponsorship in underwriting some of the Keep Playing Baseball content on our website, or being the title sponsor or running ads on our podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to keepplayingbaseball at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.